This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And we also welcome back our returning guest, Braden Ganter, who was originally on the Ferris Bueller's Day Off episode. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, thank you, Tom, and glad to do an episode with you, Dana. Sure. Yeah, the original one, you were only on with me. How have you been since then? I've been fine. Same stuff, new day. Just waiting for the right movie to jump back into the show. Interestingly, Edie, Mc... is it Edie McClure is the one that was the secretary in Ferris Bueller. She just apparently turned state's evidence that she's subject to elder abuse. So we've got her and we've got Jeffrey Jones. What was going on in that school? <laughs> yeah. All right, tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to The Godfather, Part 2, from 1974, written and directed by Francis Ford Coppola, co-written by Mario Puzo, starring Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Diane Keaton, John Cazale, Robert Duvall, and Lee Strasberg. This movie was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, winning seven, including Best Picture and Director, and was voted numbers 31 and 30 on the Sight and Sound Critics and Directors polls, respectively, in 2012. So let's start with you, Dad. Why do you think the Godfather series is so revered? I'm not exactly sure. For some reason... That's not the way to start this out. I I honestly don't know. I, I don't understand exactly. I know that gangster films and genre are very popular in general, I, I've never completely understood exactly why this or these two films have stood out so much. They're really good films. They're probably some of the best made, but I don't know why they're so beloved. So let's go to somebody who actually appreciates these films. Brayden, what do you think? I think this movie does a better job of being an art piece than some of the most popular movies out there. Francis Ford Coppola does a great job of using music, using pacing, and some other things that really are advanced filmmaking. So I think, you know, the film purists really enjoy this movie, and it's still got wide public reception. I think collectively, I would say that It's like taking a major studio budget and combining it with a lot of artistic themes. Realistically, most people are going to go watch a gangster film because gangster films have always sold, going back to Jimmy Cagney from the 30s. The difference in these two movies, outside of already that this was one of the most popular selling books of the late 60s, early 70s, is simply that these are not really gangster films. They are, but they're really about much more. They're about American capitalism. They're about a family drama. And if you want to lay this over the top, I would even say that these are two fairly well-known Shakespearean dramas that we've used to infuse with more modern 
history and themes of America. One being King Lear, or the original being basically King Lear in effect, because you have three sons competing for the title of the Don and who will eventually succeed the father. And the second one is more of Richard III, where the son finally gets power, but then he's corrupted by what to do with it. And so by extension, we see these recognized canon think pieces within our new modern major motion pictures, and we can't eat any more of this up. I I guess to some extent this kind of reflects the fact that so many people have a, a strange sense of relationship with their father. They try to connect. I mean, this film is in large part about Fredo and his bitterness towards how he's treated by the family and being bypassed by his father and appointing his younger brother to be the head of the family. There's a certain soap opera quality to the film. And people have always been drawn to the soap operas in general and the dynamics of family and of betrayal and of the quest for power and privilege. And this is at its most raw element. I would agree. I think a lot of motivation and a lot of good filmmaking has to do with making your audience sympathetic to your primary characters, no matter who they are. If they're anti-heroes or they're really just outright villains, you still have to have a sense that you want to root for this character and continue watching or you're invested in their story because it feels close to you in some regard, that something about their story connects with you on a more human or personal level. It it taps into, I guess, to some extent, the male primal of wanting power and influence and control of things. But what I have a hard time with dealing, or a hard time dealing with is the fact that once you have it, you spend the rest of your time trying to protect it because at any moment in time, somebody else could come in and just knock you off the hill. And at what point does it become where you go, you know, do I really want this anymore? Because I have to put so much effort into staying alive. Is it really worth it? So from the first movie, if you remember the ending, there's kind of that small twist of the knife that says that there's more going on. And that's where two really picks up because two, the opening scene is him really ending the first film. And they give you that echo from the the beginning, kind of almost in a replay, but shot a little bit differently from a different angle. In the first, though, I would say that for the majority of it, Michael is a hero in our eyes. He commits movie justice. He's getting the comeuppance for his family, for everybody trying to attack them and take them out. And by extension, he then asserts his own unilateral power over the gangs of New York. In this one, is he a villain? I think he definitely is. You know, to a certain extent, the movie is about his transformation into a villain. But nonetheless, he's a villain. Maybe he doesn't start off as one. You know, in opening, he's just basically dealing with the pressures of running the family, having meetings all day during the baptism. But uh, to me, the movie is about his transformation into being, into kind of losing himself 
and kind of transforming into a villain. So I would say yes. I would say it depends on your definition of a villain because what ultimately happens here is is that the very thing he's trying to protect, which is the family, he ends up destroying his marriage. To some extent, he now has this weird relationship with his sister and he kills his own brother. So he's now alone. So, you know, talking about family and you're trying to protect the family, there's no family left. It's just him. And now he's alone. Well, don't you see that echo, though, in the final scene before we get that view of him sitting on the lake by himself is the scene where you have Jimmy Khan come back and they're all sitting around the dinner table and they're introduced to Carlo for the first time, which is really the event that ends up pushing everything downhill, but that they leave him in order to celebrate their father's birthday, but he's left sitting alone. To me, that echo says he's a guy that's been alone his entire life anyway. Well, and it says really that this is not the path he chose. This is the path that was chosen for him. Well, you could say that from the first movie as well, because he was not supposed to be the son that took over. But Sonny's brashness and lack of creativity, lack of intelligence or planning, strategic know-how, ultimately led to his own demise. And thus, Michael had to usurp the throne because Fredo was not capable of taking it by himself either. Michael is almost a Judas figure because he's in a position where this is not necessarily what he wanted, but what circumstances dictated happened. And there's different ways of looking at Judas and the the downfall of Christ. Is it that God put him in that position or something that he personally chose? And I've seen both sides of it. If you believe that it's something that was predestined, because that's what had to unfold, you almost have sympathy for Michael because he is in a position where he has to act in order to protect the family business and the legacy of his father, even though this is not the life he wanted. Well, by the same token, and you raise an interesting point because I had not considered that about Judas for 32 years I've been alive and probably the 25 years I've been hearing that story. You wonder if his soul was, if basically God didn't care about his soul. Okay. Because if if Judas is put on earth and he's predetermined to go into that, and we're supposed to know that God loves all of us and wants to give all of us an equal shot and give us grace. Now, you could theoretically say that he gave Judas some level of grace in the end, but he chose his own path that was to not accept that grace, thus by its own extension committing suicide. And I know we're going into the Judeo-Christian history a lot here for a second instead of the movie. But by the same token, if Michael's predetermined to be on the earth to protect his family's fortune at all costs at the basic cost of his own soul, then it's kind of a wasted life. What did he accomplish? He saved the family. He's in control, but he has no marriage. He has no brothers. 
He has a sister with this weird relationship. His mother's gone. His father's gone. What's left? Well, Tom is technically still there, but by the third movie, because they wouldn't pay Robert Duvall, he's gone too. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So then what is your relationship to this movie? I think I watched this movie for the first time during uh, summer break in high school um, after renting it um, and having tried to watch a couple of the classics. I remember being surprised at how good it was. Even then, it was already sort of an older movie. And I've definitely seen it, uh, you know, at least on TV part of the way through or while flipping channels and watch from there going on. It's usually a movie I will stop on. I think that the first one is incredibly rewatchable. It's a favorite of mine and it's a very fun movie. Two is much darker and deeper than the first one and has much more complicated themes than you're rooting for the Corleones against everybody else. This one, you're not sure who to root for, for the majority of the film. I do remember watching this, I think, on cable for the first time in 2005. But my really more distinct memories of this are I had a, I think, either an iPod Touch or like one of those video iPods around that time, 2005, 2006. And I used to put both the Godfather Part 1 and Part 2, like in almost back to back loops, while I used to work in the summers closing files in dad's office. They were like background noise and I just put them off to the side and basically listened to the movie while I was closing these files. But that's why I've seen both of these movies probably at least uh, 30 some times. For me, I'd never seen two. I'd seen parts of one to the point where I ended up seeing the whole without actually having sat and watched it from beginning to end. And I hadn't seen two. You were watching them. I ended up sitting and doing almost the exact same thing with two. And then sometime later, Tom, you uh, put it on and I sat and basically watched, I think, the entire thing from beginning to end. That was the first time I'd ever sat through the entire film. I don't know why. It just wasn't something that I was uh, attracted to. Maybe because of the subject matter and the violence. I've never been a huge fan of gangster films in general. They're fine. I'll watch them. I just, it's not necessarily my taste. Yet again, you going counterculture to the American public. There's a shocker. I know, we're going to get to that around Christmas again, too. (sighs) Yes, Avatar is coming. For Christmas? Well, because number two is coming out. (laughs) We try to tie any sequels with the original subject material as best we can. Can't I just watch uh, the uh, poofies? You can sit that one out if you really want to. I'm sure I could find somebody to do Avatar with. All right, I'll sit and watch the blue people. He is objected. He has never seen it simply on the basis that he wanted to be the only person that can say he'd never seen it. Well, it's 10 years later and there have been new people born, but even so. All right. So, Dad, let's give everybody at home a little more background on this movie. Can you give us your plot summary, please? I can. 
The saga of the Corleone family continues with two parallel storylines. The first follows the continuation of Michael Corleone's control of the family and the family's criminal interests. The second in flashback follows Vito's life from Corleone, Sicily to America and his journey to becoming the Godfather. Both stories tell of compromise, betrayal, and corruption by power. But the dichotomy is in which story seems congratulatory or which seems like a tragedy. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Francis Ford Coppola as director slash writer, Mario Puzo as co-writer, Al Pacino as Michael Corleone, Robert Duvall as Tom Hagen, Diane Keaton as Kay Adams Corleone, Robert De Niro as Vito Corleone, Oreste Baldini as young Vito Corleone, John Cazale as Fredo Corleone, Talia Shire as Connie Corleone, Lee Strasberg as Hyman Roth, Michael Vigazzo as Frank Pentangeli, G.D. Sprodlin as Senator Pat Geary, Richard Bright as Al Neary, and Gaston Machin as Don Finucci. Recognition for this movie, The Godfather Part Two was wide released on December 20th, 1974. Although The Godfather Part Two did not surpass the original film commercially, it grossed $47.5 million in the United States and Canada, was Paramount Pictures' highest-grossing film of 1974, and the seventh-highest-grossing picture in the United States that year. It currently holds a 96% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a score of 90 on Metacritic, and is listed as one of their must-see movies, and a 4.5 out of 5 average on Letterboxd. The Godfather Part II was featured on Sight & Sound's director's list of the 10 greatest films of all time in 1992 at number 9, and 2002 where it ranked at number 2. The critics ranked it at number 4 that year. On the 2012 list by the same magazine, the film was ranked at number 31 by critics and at number 30 by directors. In 2006, the Writers Guild of America ranked the film's screenplay, written by Puzo and Coppola, as the 10th greatest ever. In 1999, it ranked number seven on Entertainment Weekly's list of the 100 greatest movies of all time, and it was number one on TV Guide's list of the 50 greatest movies of all time on TV and video. Also in 1999, The Village Voice ranked The Godfather Part II at number 31 in its top 250 best films of the century list, based on a poll of critics. In January 2002, the film, along with The Godfather, made the list of top 100 essential films of all time, by the National Society of Film Critics. In 2017, it ranked number 12 on Empire Magazine's Reader's Poll of the 100 Greatest Movies. In an earlier poll held by the same magazine in 2008, it was voted 19th on the list of the 500 Greatest Movies of all time. Many believe Pacino's performance in The Godfather Part II is his finest acting work, and the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences was criticized for awarding the Academy Award for Best Actor that year to... I knew this. Harry and Tonto. Yes, Art Carney. Yes, that's right, to Art Carney for his role in Harry and Tonto. It is now regarded as one of the greatest performances in film history. In 2006, Premier issued its list of 100 greatest performances of all time, putting Pacino's performance at number 20. Later in 2009, Total Film issued the 150 greatest performances of all time, ranking Pacino's performance fourth place. The Godfather Part II was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, including Best Actor, Pacino, Supporting Actor, Gazzo and Strasberg, Supporting Actress for Talia Shire, 
and costume design. The film won Best Picture, Director for Francis Ford Coppola, Supporting Actor for Robert De Niro, Adapted Screenplay for Puzo and Coppola, Art Direction, and Dramatic Score. This film is the first sequel to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. The Godfather and The Godfather Part II remain the only original sequel combination both to win Best Picture. Along with The Lord of the Rings, the Godfather trilogy shares the distinction that all of its installments were nominated for Best Picture. Additionally, The Godfather Part II and The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King are the only sequels to win Best Picture. The Godfather Part II was recognized by the American Film Institute on the following list. In 1998, it was recognized on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies at number 32. In 2003, it was recognized on 100 Years 100 Heroes and Villains, with Michael Corleone as its number 11 villain. In 2005, AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie quotes, Keep Your Friends Close But Your Enemies Closer was number 58. Also nominated were, I Know It Was You, Fredo, You Broke My Heart, You Broke My Heart and Michael were bigger than U.S. Steel. In 2007, for its 100 Years 100 Movies 10th Anniversary Edition list, it was number 32. In 2008, AFI's 10 Top 10 lists of different genres had this as the number three gangster film all time, and it was a nominated epic film as well. Did you know? Francis Ford Coppola considered bringing Marlon Brando back to play Vito Corleone as a young man, convinced that he could play him at any age. As he worked on the script, though, he remembered Robert De Niro's exceptional audition for The Godfather and cast him without offering the part to Brando. Did you know? Robert De Niro spent four months learning to speak the Sicilian dialect of Italian in order to play Vito Corleone, and lived in Sicily for three months. Nearly all of the dialogue that his character speaks in the film was in Sicilian. Did you know? When little Vito arrives at Ellis Island, he is marked with a circled X. Ellis Island immigrants were marked with this if the inspector believed the person had a mental or physical defect. Did you know? Hyman Roth's character is loosely based on real-life mobster Meyer Lansky. Lansky, who at the time of the film's release was living in Miami, reportedly phoned Lee Strasberg and said, Now, why couldn't you have made me more sympathetic? After all, I am a grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know? Francis Ford Coppola had a horrible time directing The Godfather and asked to pick a different director for the sequel, while taking the title of producer for himself. He chose... Care to take a guess? Spielberg. I don't think I have any good guesses. No good guesses? He chose Martin Scorsese, who the film executives rejected. Thus, Coppola agreed to direct the film with a few conditions. Did you know? Though it claims to be based on the novel by Mario Puzo, only the scenes about the young Vito Corleone have any basis in the book. Only one chapter in the book is devoted to Vito's youth and young adulthood. The story revolving around Michael and the family in Las Vegas is entirely unique to the film. Did you know? Marlon Brando was scheduled to return for a cameo in the flashback at the end of the film, but because of the way Paramount Pictures treated him during The Godfather, the original, he did not show up for shooting on the day the scene was filmed. Francis Ford Coppola rewrote the scene without Vito, and it was filmed the next day. Did you know? James Caan asked that he be paid the same amount of money to play Santino Sonny Corleone at the end of the film in the flashback as he was paid to do the entire Godfather movie. He got his wish. Did you know? Danny Aiello's line, Michael Corleone says hello, was completely ad-libbed. 
Francis Ford Coppola loved it and asked him to do it again in the retakes. Aiello later claimed on Gilbert Gottfried's podcast that, due to being nervous about working with Coppola, he didn't hear himself when he said the line and, to this day, has no idea why he said it. Did you know? Originally, it was supposed to be Clemenza who agrees to testify against the Corleones. According to Francis Ford Coppola, Richard S. Castellano, who was the highest paid actor in The Godfather, wanted to write his own lines and wanted a large salary increase. Consequently, his character was replaced by Frankie Pentangeli, Michael Vigazzo, who received an Oscar nomination for the performance. But according to Ardell Sheridan, Castellano refused to regain the 50 pounds required for the role due to health reasons, so Coppola decided to replace him rather than have a thinner Clemenza. Did you know? Lee Strasberg came out of retirement to play Hyman Roth after a specific request from Al Pacino. He was unwilling at first, but agreed to do it after a 45-minute meeting with Francis Ford Coppola's father, Carmine Coppola. And with that, we will take our first break and be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we will be discussing the first of the films of my personal favorite director, Christopher Nolan, with his 2014 hit, Interstellar, written and directed by Christopher Nolan, co-written by Jonathan Nolan, starring Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway, Jessica Chastain, and Michael Caine. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, let's go to best performance then. Braden, who did you have written down? I'm going to go with the director here, Francis Ford Coppola. I know you just mentioned in the rewards category that um, Best Actor was also awarded. But to me, this is a a director's performance above all else. Well, he's my Best Secondary nominated. Dad, did you have him down anywhere? I had Coppola. Basically, again, I split the category Best Performance with Coppola and Pacino. I thought, again, Pacino's performance... Pacino... (laughs) Pacino was best when he wasn't speaking. His facial expressions, how he held his eyes, his body language was the best acting he did in the film. It's almost like you could do an entire film at that time, at least with Pacino, with him in silence, and it would have been a powerful performance. But again, the timing, the rhythm, going back and forth between two parallel storylines, and tying them together was really craftsmanship by Coppola as the director. But I'll give it another portion, which is the screenwriting itself was so good. I'm not sure how much of the screenwriting itself was Coppola and how much was Puzo. I know Coppola had won an Academy Award previously for screenwriting for writing two. He had run two. I know he won, he won one for The Godfather in the original one with Puzo, but he had also won, and I think this is where you were going, for Patton. Patton, yeah. And the, uh, as an anecdote, Puzo, <laughs> after he had been nominated and won and all this stuff for the, the films, had never done any screenwriting. So at one point in his career, after The Godfathers were done, he thought, well, maybe I should try to learn a little bit more about this. So if I get a chance to write for another movie, I will. So he, he went to this bookstore and he bought a book on screenwriting and he takes it home and he opens up the book 
and it starts reading it. And the first chapter tells him how to go about doing this and this and this, and then says, we're now going, the second chapter was, we're going to explore some of the best screenwriting and it's his own writing for the Godfather. And so he said at that point, okay, I guess I really know more about this than I thought. So he put the book on the shelf and never bothered to work or do anything further again. So I heard that in an interview he gave. Is that like every time that you chuckle when you have to quote yourself in a brief? (laughs) Somewhat. That's one of my favorite things is footnoting a brief that I've written, which is right on point and tells somebody why they're wrong. And then I quote and say, well, this was my case in the court and blah, blah, blah. Well, we're definitely going to be coming back around to the dialogue and the writing of this when we get to best quotes, because this movie, and for that matter, the original Godfather, have some of the best and most quotable lines in the history of Hollywood. And it's really no coincidence that he is the master creator behind both, to be fair, with Puzo, who I think had a little bit more handle on the story arc as opposed to the dialogue writing. Dialogue writing seems to be a specialty of Coppola, If you look at Patton or The Conversation, which was also this year that he had nominated for Best Picture as well. So, I mean, he was pulling double duty or Apocalypse Now. This was really something that always spoke to him and he was very good at. But I would agree that there are some fantastic elements of this and why he's my best secondary is only because I think by comparison to the crowning achievement that is Pacino's performance in this, that I could I couldn't put them on quite the same level because he'd already achieved a certain height for me with the original Godfather. He was kind of copying it in a way, but also putting a much more artistic flair. I absolutely agree that the two storylines should not work. And in fact, for most of the original edit of this film didn't work. When they showed it to test audiences, this was an absolute bomb, enough that Paramount Pictures actually was deathly afraid that this thing was going to tank in the theaters until he started editing it more into the long story arcs as opposed to the short ones where he was constantly cutting back and forth. Basically, every time that they switch scenes, he was switching within the movie. In this version, he's at least going like two or three scenes in the Michael version, and then he'll go to two or three scenes in the Vito version and back and forth. The other one made people like, wonder what movie they were in because they couldn't tell what was going on. Yeah. Now, part of that is realizing that you need to change your vision and being willing to do that, which is a hard thing to do to begin with, but also having the vision to begin with that said, I need to tell this part of the book that hasn't been told before. And I also need to tell this new Michael story that everybody's really wanting as the sequel to this movie. And given that all of the Las Vegas or the post Godfather stuff was all his and Puzo's creation. You got to give him extra credits on that as well. But he also had a series of some of the best people working on his films. The score is a family member of his, or at least was one of the co-writers of it. He has his sister in the picture and gives her probably a lot more to do than the original movie, where I thought she was actually rather shrill, if you remember back to it. This one, she has a lot more moving scene work to do, and the ability to do it really comes out. And I actually think that she deserved her nomination for the one scene where she asks Michael to forgive Fredo. 
Now, that being said, he also coaxed some of the best performances out of everybody. You could easily have made Gazzo, Strasburg, Cazal, and De Niro all best supporting actors for this particular year. You probably could have thrown in somebody else as well because a lot of actors reached their highest levels for this particular film. And again, the only reason that I didn't go with him for best performance is I just think that this might be one of the seminal acting performances of all time. Pacino, as you said, is best when he's in silence, when he's just staring everybody down. He has this stone poker face through most of the movie, just trying to figure out, okay, is this guy a guy I can trust? Is this a guy that betrayed me? And always trying to figure it out, always being calculating. And his demeanor rarely changes, but he has some of his moments. And if you really want a scene that elevates his ability to act, the minute between Kay revealing that she had the abortion to him exploding and actually hitting her, the facial changes as he accepts the fact that she actually had the abortion and goes into that fit of rage, just watch his face adjust very slightly and very slightly. And as she keeps talking up until the point where you see this intense fury behind him, it is absolutely breathtaking as an acting performance. So Braden, who did you have as your best secondary? I had Robert De Niro as the best secondary. And that's before you even added the consideration that he had to learn a new language and spoke it for most of the film. I thought he did a great job he also had a lot of this acting without lines where he was just moving through scenes. And I really thought he just did a good job overall of playing the character and, and sort of, you know, speaking the language. I think he's one of only like 10 performers to win a acting award for a movie that I think over 90% of their spoken dialogue is not English in the history of the Oscars. So that was a very good point to make in the earlier category, because it's not quite something you realize while watching the movie. Wow. He's speaking a lot of, you know, this foreign language and you don't realize watching the movie, he had never spoken it before. Well, given that he was Italian, I had always assumed before kind of doing the research on this, that he had some background in Italian. And I was also not really attuned to the fact that there's a different dialect that they're speaking. So I'm sure it has about the same difference to, let's say, if you go down to, let's say, Mississippi or Alabama, as opposed to how we talk in the Midwest in Wisconsin. Not quite. It's not an accent. It's an actual different dialect. It's a different language. There's certain words. It's kind of like the difference between Yiddish and German. Who did you have as your best secondary, Deb? Lee Strasberg, the guy or one of the founders of the actor's studio. <laughs> he just was great. He played the part so well. He was engaging. You almost had empathy towards him for some of the situations he was in. But yet you could also see that this guy was just absolutely ruthless. It's a yin and a yang. There's a certain element about him that's both pleasing and kind and generous. And then there's also that you can just see this guy would absolutely tear, reach into your chest and tear your heart out if he felt it was necessary. 
it's an absolute all-time flex because I think this is his first and maybe only film that he ever acted in, but he's one of the great acting teachers of all time. Oh, he was in one other film, which was a later film that was remade a couple of years ago, and I'm drawing a blank as to the name of the film. The original had George Burns, Art Carney, and Lee Strasberg, and then it was redone with, I want to say, Michael Caine and uh, Morgan Freeman. It was about... uh, Oh, Going in Style? Going in Style. Lee Strasberg was in Going in Style. That would have been interesting. It was. I enjoyed that film. The original. I've never seen the remake, and I'd like to. So I already gave you my best secondary in Coppola. Let's go to Most Charismatic. Dad, who did you have down? De Niro. It was so obvious that this guy was good, and this guy was going to be great. He just had a presence. He could be charming, and he could be absolutely badass. I think this is an offshoot of what he would eventually do that was a much crazier version in Taxi Driver. A crazed, somewhat heroic killer. Yeah. Braden, who did you have down? Uh, Looks like me and Dana flip-flop because I had Lee Strasberg as my most charismatic. Most of the reasoning behind that is because I think he drew me in a little bit, whereas I believed his lies. Uh, When he's telling Michael this and that, and he's telling everybody else that he's going to pass the business interest along to Michael when he passes and that he's near death. I'm sitting there believing it all, and and Michael sees right through it. So I thought that was the most charismatic character, and I just, I guess me and Dana sort of agreed on the same two people, but put put them on the opposite categories. I'm going to go a little off the board, somebody we haven't mentioned before. But John Cazale, to me, I've mentioned before that he's in like five films all time, and all five of them, he gives great performances. The Godfather, The Godfather Part Two, The Conversation, Dog Day Afternoon, and his last film was The Deer Hunter. I mean, that's a pretty good five films to have been a part of before he unfortunately passed away early due to cancer. But he was also apparently Marital Streep's, as she puts it, love of her life. So that's not a bad batting average. But then on top of it, in this particular movie, he has to be slightly dim-witted, but believable that he would fall for this quite obvious ruse and then be sympathetic that you're really looking for Michael to forgive him so that by the end, when the gun is pulled out and you hear the gunshot, that it's one of the most devastating losses in movie history. Yeah, I, and I had forgotten until I watched the film again <laughs> that he's praying right before he is uh, killed. And uh, the timing and, and the way that that was done was just so well performed and well presented. I would say constructed, too, because on the front end, it actually feels like something that could have been realistic but they play it for that effect because if you're just simply putting him out there as saying a Hail Mary right before that, you think that he's basically on his knees waiting to be shot. And in this case, it's not. It just happens to be a coincidence, but plays out very cinematically. Let's go to best scene, gentlemen. I have quite a few down here. Vito's family history, Senator Geary, failed hit on Michael, Michael visits Roth and Pentangeli, 
the hit on Pentangeli, Cuba, which I'll kind of rope almost into one except for this one scene I will also nominate, You Broke My Heart, Vito Kills the Black Hand, Vito Sicilian Revenge, Pentangeli's Testimony, Kay's Abortion, and Hail Mary Fishing. Did I miss any? I'm not thinking you did. No. I think there's an argument that I could put in the final Corleone dinner uh, where they're all back together at the end, but I think that's the only one. And I left it out intentionally because that's kind of a short scene and it's telling on the rest of the movie, but I don't know if it's a nominee for best scene on its own. I think it is because actually I, I need it to be a separate scene. Well, it is a separate scene, so you'd have to nominate it over the top. Well, then I am, because that's ultimately what I have as my most indelible, is just the closing of seeing Michael sitting there by himself after he's commented, this isn't what I wanted. All right, so then, Braden, what do you have as best scene? I think for the best scene, I'm going for the assassination attempt of Michael. Maybe it's just that it's the most action-packed, and that's part of what gets me. It's got one of my favorite lines, why are the drapes open? It's got the gunfire, it's got the dog chases, it shows them turning on the floods, floodlights. I thought it was a lot going on, and a lot that goes on quickly, but you really can follow it really easily. Yeah, I think it's kind of the action-thrusting scene of the movie. It's where everything starts to roll downhill a little bit. Everything before that is somewhat exposition to try and move us from point A to point B of what's going on in this story. But that's the one that really sets off the chain of events that will dominate the course of the film. The best scene is the combination scene. It's the scene where Tom goes to the prison and says, you know, basically implies kill yourself, we'll take care of your family. And then at the same time, we're seeing that Roth is ultimately killed and we're seeing that Fredo or Fredo's killed. And it's kind of that whole thing. It's the drawing everything together and realizing power in and of itself does not have to be overt. It can be implied. In other words, if you kill yourself, don't worry, we'll take care of your family because we have that kind of power, money, and influence. Then it doesn't matter whether you're protected or not. If we want to kill you, we'll kill you. And then ultimately, it's power and betrayal result in death regardless of blood. And those three things show an aspect summarizing what the entire film is about, if not also The Godfather Part 1. Well, theoretically, he says a final line that I'm sure is going to come up in best quotes, but do you want to eliminate everyone? No, I just want to eliminate my enemies. And in that scene, he kind of takes care of it. It's, again, somewhat of an echo or a mirroring effect from the first film, although I would say it has a, a much different effect on the audience as the first film during the christening where Today I solve all family business, but in this case, it's his, instead of being his triumph and his accomplishment at rising to be the Don and cementing his own status, this is his final descent into hell. Well, you say that, Tom, but you also asked whether or not he was a villain at the beginning of the podcast, and this, is, this was part of the reasoning that I was saying this was a transformation. It might be this scene 
that is the end of the transformation where Michael Foley becomes a villain. I'm going to go with, boy, I'm torn between two and they're right on top of each other. I really like Pentangeli's testimony, but I can't get over how well acted the abortion scene is. I mean, it's just an absolute masterclass. So I think I'll go with that as best scene just because of the powerful performances that you get from two of the great actors of the 70s. Favorite scene, I'm going to go with Vito killing the Black Hand. I think that one of the things that really aids this movie in ways is that is something that was actually a criticism when the film originally came out, and that's the intersplicing of the Vito storyline, because that's supposed to be somewhat positive and upbeat. It's got some comedic rhythm to it, uh, especially with like Bruno Kirby being in there or the guy towards the end that lets the woman stay at his apartment complex apparently was a very good improv comic. And so I think that this is probably the culmination other than maybe the uh, Sicilian revenge where he finally gets the hit on the mob boss that killed the rest of his family. But Vito killing the black hand and really cementing himself as the neighborhood Don is a part that is uplifting, even though it's a murderous and violent act, because you're ultimately rooting for Vito just in the same way that you're pleading with Michael not to go over the lines that you think that he's going to go. Dad, what was your favorite scene? This took a long time for me to figure out. And again, it comes back to the final scene, which is the family sitting around the table to celebrate Vito's birthday. And it's both my favorite scene and the most indelible to me because it speaks to me. Because a lot of times when you're in a family dynamic like that and you're looked at as being the person who is the most likely to achieve something, it puts added pressure on you because it's not just you feel like you're not able to live the life you want, but you have to live a life that's accepted and you know that your other members of your family are living vicariously through you so it puts added pressure on you to succeed and you could just see Michael realizing that he was not going to be in control of his destiny and his life and he felt very alone and no one seemed to understand exactly what he was going through. Brayden, what did you have down? When Vito was still in the carpet, and this is part of the acting performance of Robert De Niro, but, you know, he does a good job of playing like he's not even in on the joke or in on the crime until they're well into committing it. And, and I think it's just definitely one of my favorites. And I'll save my other one for the next category. Well, no need to save it. My other scene is Michael Corleone says, Hello. It's sort of the most indelible to me. It's one of the more memorable, the the attempt on Frank that fells. I was actually left asking for quite a while in the film, trying to figure out for sure whether or not this was a purposely felled assassination attempt or not. Sort of a conspiracy put on by Hyman Roth to make it look like the attempt had been made, but it was unsuccessful. And I'm not sure if I ever answered that question for sure. I think 
it's the part that most confused me about everything, and only in maybe the last few viewings have I truly felt that I figured most of the plot of this out, because that really bothered me for a while. Is Michael actually behind the hit on Pentangeli, and so he's going to get his just desserts, and he somehow weasels his way out of it at the end? But I don't think that's the case now, especially with the conversation that Johnny Ola has with Fredo. I really do think that that's just a line that they inserted to make him think that Michael somehow double-crossed him and thus giving it that added extra motivation on top of it. But it is somewhat of a confusing plot point. And yet Coppola has the genius of knowing that that ad lib actually gives the audience that much more confusion and thus more investment in the story as to trying to figure it out. It's not spoon-fed to them, and so they're going to spend... 30 rewatches trying to figure it out. Dad, most indelible, I think you already said. Yes, I did. All right, so then mine is just the Hail Mary fishing, which is the scene you mentioned before with the three killings back to back to back. Again, I just think it's... The thing that you think about most is, okay, Michael's descent, and what is the thing that you don't think he's going to do and cross which line, and that's the moment that he finally crosses it and establishes himself and the darkness within him by the end of the movie so that you just see the look and the agedness that's on his face as he sits by the lake by himself at the tail end of the film. So that's a good spot to take our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, you can sign up for our newsletter at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast or find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. Also, before we get back to the regular portion of the show, Dad, do we have anyone to recognize this week? We do. Heather Gray, 50, uh, American TV producer. She produced The Talk and The Tyra Banks Show. She passed away this week. Unfortunately, I guess it was to an illness that we're not sure of. It wasn't disclosed in the statement released by her representatives, But she'd been producing those shows for a number of years, I think at least over a decade on CBS, and apparently was very talented by comments that were made by the networks. George Bartonief, he was a German-American actor. He was in Hercules in New York, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, and Cookie. Apparently, though, his biggest claims to fame were more on the stage. I was reading kind of the obituary that I tied to the link in our notes on the website, And I guess he was primarily known for starting two actor companies for off-off-Broadway productions in New York. He was very influential in that community, even though he'd done a few different TV appearances as a character actor, and obviously in the movies that you mentioned. Pat Carroll, 95. Long, long life, long, long career. She started out in the Danny Thomas show and the uh, Sid Caesar hour. So this is in the late fifties, but she was also the voice for, is it Ursula? That was the uh, sea witch in the little mermaid. Correct. And uh, so she had a long, long career in sitcoms, a few bit parts in, in films. She won an Emmy in 1957 the minute I saw her, I went, oh, oh, okay, I know exactly who that is. And I could tell you episodes that were in syndication from uh, sitcoms 
that I watched as a, as a, as a young man or a young boy, you know, coming home from grade school. And definitely as an old man, too. Yeah. We also lost Michelle Nichols, American actress, Truck Turner, and Snow Dogs. But most infamously as Lieutenant Uhura in Star Trek. She had the distinction of being a major or a continuous character in a television series as a black female uh, in the mid-60s, late-60s on Star Trek when those roles were not given to African-American women. So she was kind of a pioneer, very classy lady, always seemed to uh, present herself well. And she'll live on in those Star Trek TV series and films forever. Not only was she a pioneer for just being on the show, but in the last season, I did see this as a think piece that was written by the Times, that she actually did the first on-screen interracial romance and kiss as she was unfortunately paired up with William Shatner at one point in a season three episode. Interesting. We also lost uh, Mary Alice, an American actress. Um, She won an Emmy, or excuse me, a Tony Award for Fences. She was in A Different World and The Matrix Revolutions. And lastly, even though this is not directly in the field of film necessarily, although I think he did a cameo in at least one or two films. We lost an American legend as far as television, and that's Vin Scully, famous radio and television broadcaster for the Brooklyn and Los Angeles Dodgers. Vin was uh, 94. He was an American treasure. And Tom, uh, when you were a little kid, I used to uh, tell you that you know, the way Vin Scully did broadcasts, which was he did them alone. And uh, he would fill time talking to himself. And I thought it was the most it was the most wonderful thing I'd ever heard. And I kept telling you. And then ultimately, when we were able to get MLB package and we could watch Dodger games, I sat and had you watch a Dodger game. And I remember you laughing so hard because you thought I was lying. Yeah, absolute legend in broadcasting, one of the absolute OGs of baseball broadcasting, had done several World Series and is infamous for the line, and it's by the bag, and it gets by Buckner! Well, unfortunately, another week with quite a few names to enter uh, and remember. We respect and remember all of these here with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Let's move on to best lines. Michael Corleone. My father taught me many things in here. He taught me in this room. He taught me, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. I'm in Roth. I don't trust a doctor who can hardly speak English. Michael Corleone. What do you want from me? Do you expect me to let you go? Do you expect me to let you take my children from me? Michael as well, which is going to be the common theme of all of these quotes. I don't feel I have to wipe everybody out, Tom. Just my enemies. Michael. 
He's been dying from the same heart attack for the last 20 years. So, Michael, why are the drapes open? Michael and Roth. I saw a strange thing today. Some rebels being arrested. One of them pulled the pin on a grenade he had in his vest. He took himself and the captain of the command with him. Now, soldiers are being paid to fight. The rebels aren't. What does that tell you? They could win. Michael to Tom. If anything in this life is certain, if history has taught us anything, it is that you can kill anyone. I have one more. Also, Michael, I have my own plans for my future. Michael, I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke my heart. I'm in Roth. I'd give four million just to be able to take a piss without it hurting. Of course, that would be nominated by the 50-year-old man. Excuse me, 58-year-old man. I wasn't going to age you. It's okay. I earned it. So since Braden's out, K. Corleone. Oh, Michael. Michael, you are blind. It wasn't a miscarriage. It was an abortion. An abortion, Michael. Just like our marriage is an abortion. Something that's unholy and evil. I didn't want your son, Michael. I wouldn't bring another one of your sons into this world. It was an abortion, Michael. It was a son, Michael. A son. And I had it killed because this must all end. I now know that it's over. I knew it then. There would be no way, Michael. No way you could ever forgive me, not with this Sicilian thing that's been going on for 2,000 years. It's all I have. Oh, I got quite a few to go. So I guess it's just the Tom time now. Senator Geary, I despise your masquerade, the dishonest way you pose yourself, you and your whole fucking family. Michael, we're both part of the same hypocrisy, Senator, but never think it applies to my family. Fredo and Michael, I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Pop wanted it. It ain't the way I wanted it. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Like dumb. I'm smart and I want respect. Senator Geary again. I want your answer and the money by noon tomorrow. And one more thing. Don't you contact me again. Ever. From now on, you deal with Turnbull. Michael. Senator. You can have my answer now. If you like. My final offer is this. Nothing. Not even the fee for the gaming license, which I would appreciate if you would put up personally. And then my last one, which I'm surprised you didn't nominate, Dad, since you nominated it as a scene. Tom and Frank Pentangeli. Tom, when a plot against the Emperor failed, the plotters were always given a chance to let their families keep their fortunes, right? Yeah, but only the rich guys, Tom. The little guys got knocked off and all their estates went to the Emperors. Unless they went home and killed themselves... Then nothing happened. And the families, the families were taken care of. That was a good break. A nice deal. Yeah, they went home and sat in a hot bath, opened up their veins and bled to death. And sometimes they had a little party before they did it. All right. You guys ready for the Stanley rubric? Yes. Brayden, do you feel comfortable if I let you lead off on Legacy? I do. Mostly because I was just going to give it a 10. 
You did ask why was it held in such a high regard, sort of acknowledging that it's one of the highest held in regard movies there is, and I definitely rank it in the top 10 or so, as do most scoring websites out there. I can't quibble with that too much, although I have a slightly different opinion. I think for me, it's a five from the industry. They've really come around on this since the initial scoring that the critics did because they didn't understand the movie. It was a bit ahead of its time as far as the complexity of this, especially for a motion or a major motion picture that would go on to win Best Picture. But they even awarded it Best Picture in its time, which is something that films that are ahead of their time normally don't do. So even in that, I think the Academy and the industry kind of came around on this a lot sooner than we might have expected. But for me, this is only a 4.5 for the audience because of one simple fact. I think for the vast majority of people, The Godfather is more enjoyable, but part two is for movie critics and cinema lovers because it's more dense, it's more complicated, it has more complicated themes And so there's a lot more to really parse out of this movie by comparison. So if we're just going on a general audience basis, I'm going to go with a 4.5 for a 9.5 overall. Industry is a five for legacy. The public, I think there's a lot of the public who's never even seen two or constantly confuses two when it's on television with one can't disperse or or parse out which one or which parts or which film. So I actually went with a four for the public for that reason, nine overall for it, simply because I think the public has a tendency more to forget about part two than the cinema files. Okay, so then it does make the math easy. Did you need help with it? Not on this one. Impact significance. Dad, let's let you lead off. When this came out and for the first several years, critics were kind of split, confusing, and why did we have these back and forth and the two films within one? So the industry itself, I don't think in the short term, appreciated the film. I think it had to take a longer view. So from the industry, I wanted the four. From the public, the reason I went down is simply because it didn't draw as well as one. It was not something that everybody flocked to see quite to the same level. But I think the public enjoyed it and liked it for those who saw it and and realized what it was. So I'm with a 4.5. So, as a result, I come up with a 9.5. No, you don't. Excuse me, 8.5. There you go. Apparently, you needed help on the math. Yeah, I guess so. Braden, what did you have down? I'm going to go with a 9. We did note note that it still won some awards at the um, uh, Oscars and whatnot, uh, which was within a, a certain time period of the film being released. And, and I guess that's most of my reasoning. You know, I guess I still sort of look at it through the prism of modern day and we might sort of lie to ourselves about how well received the film was within the first three or four or five years of its release. 
but when we speak about its legacy, we still speak about it as if it was a successful film all along. Well, given that this was one of the very few sequels that had ever been made up to this point, I have to give that even though the critics were a little bit harsh by comparison to the original movie, given that you're making comparisons back and forth with the original movie and how well that was enjoyed, the fact that it was a Best Picture winner, it kind of swept a lot of the Oscars. I really have to say that they gave this pretty decent marks, all things considered, because usually the sequel doesn't live up. And if you have complaints, they're usually manifest in your review and your scoring. In this case, they kind of gave it lukewarm numbers, but like I said, they kind of came around on it just enough to award this best picture, best director, give it 11 different nominations and like seven wins. So I can't be too harsh. So I went with a 4.5 on this because I don't really think that the critic reviews in the moment were quite as bad. And realistically, within even two or three years, most people had kind of come around on this movie as not that good, at least at initial view. So I give them a little bit of a pass. On the audience side of it, though, I just think that there was such a commercial clamoring for the first one, and it was one of the biggest pictures of all time. I think it set the box office record for the amount of money that it made at the time. It was an absolutely huge movie. It was the first really wide-released movie that I can remember. Most films up to that point had very short windows and were kind of shopped around but it really made the difference in movie history as to how the business was done and the economics of movies. This one did decent business, but as we mentioned, it was only in the top 10 of the year. So I gave it only a 3.5 for the audience side of it for an 8. So that, again, makes the math very easy. It is an 8.5. Novelty. How many other films are two films within one? I know this is a sequel, and I kind of have harped on sequels before, but it's really not a sequel of the original because it's not really like the original. It has a completely different flair all to its own, and like I said, the first one is much more commercialized, and while it's a epic gangster film and has a lot of family drama, this one is much darker and has more dense subject material, so... A lot of the elements that make one fun and enjoyable and rewatchable really aren't present in this movie. And so as a result, because it's Michael Lu- or with his, I guess, quest to lose his own soul, it makes this movie a lot tougher of a rewatch. But at the same time, I would say it makes it more novel than probably the original. And so I think I gave the original a 10 on this one. I really don't see too many reasons to go below that for this one. Dad? I, I gave it a seven for novelty simply because, again, it was a continuation. Actually, I'm going to change that to an eight in retrospect because, really, this is not a sequel. A true sequel is a film where you re- have a story with an, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And now you have to try to come up with something that follows the same path and the same characters and creates a new story altogether. This is a continuation. I know it's a sequel, but it's really a continuation of the film. And as a result, 
how it was handled and the fact that it was kind of left open at the end of part one and then brought back into part two was more novel. So I'm going to give it an eight for that reason. I'm going for 8.5. I do think most of what makes this a higher novelty score than what we would have went with otherwise are the flashback scenes. That is sort of, as you guys have defined it, a unicorn quality that sets this movie apart from some other movies. When we're going back to see Vito and how he came into power as the godfather and moving back and forth between that and the regular storyline of the movie, that for me adds a novelty score and increases it by at least a point and a half or so. So then the average between the three of us is an 8.83. Classicness. Dad, do you want to lead off? Sure. Actually, I, I thought there was almost less violence directly on screen in this in two than in one. There was more implied or even the, the scenes where there was violence, it was not necessarily always shown and is raw. So I think it took a step back, and to that extent, I gave it a little bump up on classicness. I didn't see anything that was about it that was overwhelmingly horrible or problematic. Understanding, again, this is a period piece into the late 50s, and the issue of Las Vegas and mafia connections and such... I gave it a 9 for classicness. I gave it an 8.5. I agree with most of what Dana's saying. I scored down just a teeny bit because of the interspousal quarreling between Michael and his wife. Um, some of those teens scenes still are pretty intense, and those fights, you know, and there is a hit and some yelling matches and some other things that sort of hurt the classicness score a little bit. You know, obviously, though, uh, the alleviating factor being that this is a gangster movie and this person's a gangster, it's not exactly like they're trying to pass this off as normal behavior that someone can get by with. This is a character that's a bad person. Right, and that's the category area in which I was going to go as well. I think that to take this down too many points for either its violence or subject material doesn't put it in context of exactly what you said, that it's a gangster film and that these are fairly evil people by normal American standards. And as such, I actually gave it a 9.5. The only thing that I really graded it down on was the domestic violence between Michael and Kay, but you still understand in the moment his reaction. It's just not how you should be able to react in if this film were made in 2022. But then again, I think this film wouldn't be made in 2022 anyway. So that makes the math pretty easy. That's a nine overall for all of us as the average. Rewatchability. Since uh, this was a movie you looked forward to doing, Braden, I'll let you go first. I put it at, can I do an 8.75? Do you allow that? or? I suppose. That puts it. I did do a comp couple of comparison movies that puts it right with a good few men, slightly above Goodwill Hunting. You mean a few good men? Yeah, that, that's what I said, isn't it? Uh, yeah, a good a few good men. 
slightly above Goodwill Hunting. Most of my reasoning is it is a three and a half hour movie, and there are these intense scenes. You know, I do like a slightly less complicated movie if I'm going to just tune in and uh, follow along with the storyline. This you almost do have to watch from about 20 minutes in to end. Otherwise, you're sort of lost unless you remember the plot lines very well. I'm not sure if it's something where you can uh, flip through the channels, join in halfway through, and at least not spend the first half an hour or so trying to catch yourself up and remind yourself, oh yeah, this is what happened in the plots, you know, coming up to this point. Well, thank goodness you're here to speak for the younger generation, because I would not have taken that all into account. But dad, since this is not your cup of tea, I'll let you go second. I went with a seven. It's a film that I will rewatch. You know, if it's one of those where I'm sitting at night and I'm just trying to make sure, you know, or trying to relax a bit and the film is on, I know enough of the storyline that I'll be able to pick it up wherever it is in the film and watch. So I went with a, um, with the seven as a result of that. For me, I had an 8.5. I have The Godfather, I believe, at a nine as far as rewatchability. And despite having watched both of these movies so many times, this is a much more difficult movie to try and get through. I do think that there is a difference between the roughly three-hour runtime of the original movie and the three-hour and 20-plus-minute runtime of this movie. It also doesn't help that this is a much heavier movie that you have a lot more complex themes to try and go through and that it requires a lot more focus than I think the original one does where you can probably pick up at any point and watch and think, oh, okay, it's the head horse scene. All right, I can watch from here. Or, oh, Michael's about to shoot Salazzo. I can pick up from here. With this one, you kind of have to almost watch it from the beginning at times, even though I think I understand this now on the 30th or 40th revisit as to what most of the plot lines are, but it took me quite a while to piece through all of this. So I can only imagine how long it took Michael to think through everything. So I went with an 8.5. That puts our average at an 8.08 for the category. For audience score, we had a 92% for Google and a 97% for Rotten Tomatoes. So that gives us a 9.45. So to repeat the categories, we had a 9.5 for Legacy, an 8.5 for Impact Significance, an 8.83 for Novelty, a 9 for Classicness, an 8.08 for Rewatchability, and a 9.45 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 53.36. And currently placing it on the list, Between High Noon and the Best Years of Our Lives, two spots below the original Godfather. So that seems appropriate. Yeah. Remaining questions. One of my remaining questions is, how does Michael know so quickly that Hyman Roth is responsible for the conspiracy? He does spend a while interviewing people and trying to figure out who is responsible for the assassination attempt. But really, to me, he's just trying to figure out who held Hyman Roth from from Michael's inner circle. And he knew basically instantly that he was right, that that it was Hyman Roth, and he was just making sure he was right about that fact from there moving forward. 
Well, I think by the time that he interviews Roth, he has an inkling because he's really trying to read both him and Pentangeli. And I think the way that Roth acts as kind of aloof to the situation puts him in a more suspicious light immediately. But then it's really confirmed when Fredo makes the slip in the club. And to me, that's the confirmation because that's when he sends out his hitman to assassinate Roth. Well, part that, that's part of what I'm saying is he figures out Michael was, or that his brother was in the, the person from the inner circle that aided. But to me, he had figured out long before that Roth was responsible for it. And he did want us to, to confirm it for himself. But he, he says, he gives a line, if, if I'm... If I'm right, if what I think happened happened, and and to me that's him saying, kind of saying already that he knew Roth was responsible. See, I don't necessarily see it that way. I think he may have had a nice guess, and that he's trying to add up to it. But my guess is is that he didn't know for certain, and we all immediately in the aftermath of anything that's a mystery or a question to us put our best guess together, and then start trying to deduce facts to fit our narrative. That's always how things go. Instead, he had a narrative that said it's either Pentangeli or it's Roth. And so I'm going to play these two against each other as kind of a good cop, bad cop situation and see which one of them I can press on and get me to give them the goods or to give me the goods. I really didn't have any remaining questions other than Michael's got this empire that was supposed to be preserving the family. What exactly is he preserving? He has Connie and his two children who has to split time between he and Kay, although he controls that for the most part. I know that Godfather 3 was kind of deadpanned as being kind of poorly done but I almost want to watch it to see how it ends. That's fair. Do you have any other remaining questions, Braid? I touched on this a little bit earlier, but I am still wondering whether or not Frank Pangeli's assassination attempt, the attempt on him, on his life, was purposely not successful, whether or not that was set up by Ivan Roth or someone else so that Frank could be used as a witness or be turned against Michael? That's a really unanswerable question. I don't think there's anything in the film that leads me to believe that it's an unsuccessful attempt on purpose. I mean, you'd really have to stage something. I don't know how he doesn't die to begin with. He's literally dragged by a, is it a garrote? Across the room by his neck. Like, I, I don't know how that doesn't break his windpipe. All right, so then my first question, and I have a few. So why does Michael actually kill Fredo? Because he's going to continually be a point where he could be flipped, used against himself, or always be some sort of concern. He's a potential weakness to Michael. Yes. Ultimately, what ends up happening is he's proved his metal, his proclivities, however you want to phrase it, and somebody could exploit it at some other point in time. Yeah, I think that's definitely the implication is is that because he feels stepped over, that at some point 
he's going to want his own thing again. And right now he might be happy with just fishing or being an uncle, but at some point he's going to want something else too. And yet, given the fact that he went against the family in the first movie and Michael already threatens him at that time, this is a much worse betrayal. And I think that there is a code of ethics among thieves that says you kind of got to get rid of this guy, no matter what his relationship is to you. I think that Michael also sort of has a growing rage. So he's kind of, to me, getting upset with Fredo's inability to help with the whole Frank Pangeli testimony situation and his inability to aid in sort of stopping the testimony from happening. Yeah, but the, he kills him after Pentangeli's already dead. Yes, but he, he, his sort of growing rage and annoyance with his brother and his brother's sort of unhelpfulness in that situation, to me, sort of added to the fire. Well, I certainly don't think it helps, but I don't think that's what pushed him over the edge as a justification in his own mind, because the villain always thinks of themselves as a good person, ultimately. Do you have any remaining questions left? I will just sort of respond to the question we're posing here that it's it sort of still goes unanswered in Godfather Part 3 when, Anth- when Anthony is asking Michael why he killed his uncle. Well, since neither of us has seen 3, that will have to be remained unanswered unless we cover that one as well at some point. I don't think it'll come up. All right, so the remaining ones that I still have left... Did Tom know about the abortion? I think that's a good question. That thought came to my mind as well on this second watch through. Coppola specifically put in a scene where Tom stops her at the gate and she can't go to the store. So how is she supposed to get out for an abortion unless Tom permits it? Or he also lets someone in to perform the procedure in the facility. How does someone get into the compound without him knowing about it, a doctor to treat her? How would that possibly happen? Given that they are performed by OBs, I believe, then maybe there's a possibility that she did it in some secretive way that the doctor knew about it. But I I don't know. The only other out for Tom that I can think of is, is she said she had a miscarriage and got Tom to take her to the doctor for a procedure to basically clean up anything else. And while she was there, she had the abortion. But that's the only other way I could see around Tom not specifically knowing and betraying Michael. Yeah, you have to understand that Tom, the character that Duval plays, he knows more than he ever lets on. He sees more. He's very bright, and he knows what's going on, and he realizes that he can't say anything on certain things, And he has to be shielded from certain things. So my guess is is he may not have known when it was taking place or immediately after, but he probably figured it out. Yeah, because he's seen kind of flipping his eyes between most people as an observer, as a bystander, constantly looking at and viewing what's going on around him. So that would make sense to me as well. Who opened the drapes? Is it Fredo? How did he have access? If it's not Fredo, 
who else had access and specifically went to do that? And then why are they not also implicated in everything that's going on? It's whoever left the child's drawing on the bed. And that to me seems likely to be Fredo because he's got access to the children as well. To me, that's how it works. Someone takes the drawing into their bedroom, leaves it on the bed, and that person has to have access to the children as well. So here's the complication of that. Fredo plays dumb and says he didn't know it was going to be a hit. But then if he's leaving the drapes open, how can he not draw that conclusion? He's lying. He's not that talented of a liar. We've come to know that over two movies. Just food for thought. I'm sure we could debate this for much longer. All right. My last one. And this is the question I said last week I would ask. We have now decided which is the greater of the two movies, but I just need you to give me which of these two movies, and you don't need to give a reason, but which of these two movies is the better of the two movies? Okay. I'll go first. One. Simply because Brando's performance and understanding how the mafia worked in the 40s and 50s when it was starting. I agree. It's one. To me, Quite, it's a little more action-packed, a little more memorable, and it's the introduction of sort of this directing style that is repeated in part two. I would also say one. I think that across the board, it's just a better overall film. It's a little bit more heroic. It's a much easier and more palatable story. It's more rewatchable. But I will say that individually, some of the performances are more unique and better in part two. Remaining thoughts? I have none. Francis Ford Coppola re-released his own version of Godfather part three. Yes. I think that's on Paramount Plus right now, at least through the end of this month. That is what is that was called, according to Amazon Prime and Prime Video, the definitive cut of Godfather Part 3. It apparently can't make up for Sofia Coppola's terrible acting. (laughs) But I would still state if you're going to watch the whole series, you consider watching that cut as opposed to the original Part 3. There is allegedly a cut. I've never seen it, nor have I found it anywhere, but where you can watch both Part 1 and Part 2 in chronological order. Oh. Might be interesting at some point in time. When you have a day or two to spend. Ah, you could get through it in one sitting. Just make sure that that's about the only thing you have planned for that day. And you're wearing it depends. (laughs) (laughs) And they do have intermissions built in in both movies. All right. Thank you again for being on with us for now your second time, Brayden. You got a few more to get your five timers. I don't know. Have we decided on hats? I think we'll have hats. Simply because your mother would look really stupid in a hat. Now, the question is, is do we do Stanley Rubric hats? Do we do, do you need help with the math hats? Or do we do Gmote hats? I don't know. I'll end up paying for them, so I'll have to decide. Well, we could make them available in a Patreon sense. We have that's true that I've never really advertised. We could do all three, for that matter. Options, options. But anyway, again, thank you for being on with us. 
Yeah, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Any place the people at home can find you on either social media or any other work that you do? They can find me at Braden at DuncanDisability.com. That's my email address. You sure you want to give that out? Uh, I don't have many emails. And I'm not on Twitter and I'm not on uh, Instagram. Wow. Thank you again for listening. That'll do it for us this week. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing the first of the films of my personal favorite director, Christopher Nolan, with his 2014 hit Interstellar, written and directed by Christopher Nolan, co-written by Jonathan Nolan, starring Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway, Jessica Chastain, and Michael Caine. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.